Welcome to another episode of Storybound. This week, we have author Shayla Lawson, who will be reading Black Lives Matter, Yard Signs Matter, an excerpt from This Is Major. Shayla Lawson is the author of This Is Major, notes on Diana Ross, Dark Girls, and Being Dope. She has written for ESPN, Salon, Guernica, Vulture, and The Cut. Shayla is a McDowell and Yaddo Artist Colony Fellow, as well as a 2020 National Book Critics Circle finalist. She will be accompanied by musical artist Maita. So strap yourselves in. This is Shayla Lawson reading her story. Black Lives Matter, Yard Signs Matter. To your white neighbors. Welcome to Storybound, presented by Lit Hub Radio and the Pod Agglomerate. I'm your host, Jude Brewer. In just a little bit, you're going to get to hear author Shayla Lawson read her story, Black Lives Matter, Yard Signs Matter, from her book, This Is Major. She'll be accompanied by musical artist, Mai Ta. Let's start the show. While I was living in Portland, Oregon, I was asked to teach To Kill a Mockingbird to a group of middle schoolers during a Black History Month freelance gig. The students were bright and eager. When I asked them what they knew about the history of racism in America, slavery, segregation, Jim Crow, and civil rights, their arms shot in the air resolutely in that endearing way we've all lost by our freshman year of high school. Those are all things that happened in the South, Miss Lawson. The kids parroted in the ignorant haze that is how most kids in this country are taught to think about its racist past. But little friends, Miss Lawson is from the South, I answered. They scrunched up their noses and cocked their heads to one side. They didn't believe me. To their credit, I don't fit the image of what most people think a Southerner looks or sounds like. One concocted mostly from books and movies and inherited prejudices. But here I am. I grew up in Kentucky and went to college there. I once saw some neighbors hang a bobble-headed toy of a black basketball coach in effigy after the team lost a championship game. I went to graduate school in Indiana, technically not the South but a state that often vied with Kentucky for the dubious distinction of being the ancestral home of the Ku Klux Klan. My name is Michael Lynch, said a neighbor of mine on first meeting. As in Lynch. He explained to me that he was a descendant of the namesake. What Madam C.J. Walker was to the hair on black people's heads, this guy's distant relative was to, well, I stared at him. My eyes widened. Michael Lynch continued to shake my hand. Yes, I told my wide-eyed students. Ms. Lawson grew up in the South. I walked to the back of the classroom to place my hand on the fried drumstick shape of Kentucky on the wall map. And so often she hears people talk about the South as if it is this place full of evil, racist, bad people. But I want you to know To Kill a Mockingbird isn't a famous book 
about the South. It is a famous book about America, an America in which, less than 50 years ago, Miss Lawson would not have been able to be your teacher. Right here. I scanned the room of predominantly white upper-class students. How many of you have parents, grandparents, friends who are 50 years old? Half the kids raised their hands. What I knew that my middle school students didn't is that American racism has never been exclusive to region. I considered showing them a photograph from a 1921 edition of Portland's newspaper, The Oregonian, in which Ku Klux Klan members in full regalia stand beside the mayor and prominent government officials. Chief Kluxers tell law enforcement officers just what Mystic Organization proposes to do in the city of Portland. The caption reads, I thought about sharing this image with them, but I did not. In other lonely parts, they won't speak, they won't speak, they won't speak in the angry parts, even in their teeth, deep in the dark, and all the selfish parts, they take what they get in the other tongues, and the broken parts, they sit and they're taped and they get it done, done. Miss Lawson, it has come to our attention that some of our students have been disturbed by your teaching of To Kill a Mockingbird, the principal said after inviting me in for a chat. I'm so glad you mention it, sir. I have had my reservations about teaching a book with such mature subject matter to seventh graders. Mature? Miss Lawson, that's beside the point. We're concerned that you're focusing too much on the racial elements of the book. The racial elements of To Kill a Mockingbird? Miss Lawson, we've been teaching Lee's classic here for years now, and we've never gotten so many complaints. Our parents are unsettled by their children's interest in the racial nature of the book, and this is becoming a cause for concern. Which part? I said. Which part? Yes, I do agree the racial nature of the book is a cause for concern. Shayla, we didn't hire you to teach To Kill a Mockingbird as a book about race. But it is, I said. It is? A book about race. As an educator myself, I strongly disagree. If To Kill a Mockingbird is not a book about race, what is the story? He opened his mouth to answer. Scrolling through his cursory remembrance of the beloved novel, trawling through the high grass of Maycomb, Alabama with Scout, attempting to catch a glimpse of Boo Radley, he replayed his favorite scene from the iconic movie. Gregory Peck's closing argument, its monolithic depiction of white goodness firmly ensconced in his mind. It can be hard to talk to people like this. People so squarely convinced they stand on the right side of the racial divide they will do anything to protect it. We've migrated into a time in which it is more important for people to feel not racist than it is for them to act not racist. It almost makes me miss the times in my life when people felt entitled enough to spew their racist hatred from their neighborhood porches. Or maybe not. Our country's last 10 years have offered up enough new atrocities that I needn't feel wistful for blatant racism, as if it's some distant recollection of the past. We're clearly not in a post-racial America, 
stated publicist Rachel Nordlinger on the Melissa Harris Perry Show in 2013. We're in a post-Trayvon Martin America. As much as it pains me to use the death of a young boy, a boy the same age as many of the students I've taught over the years, as the touchstone of an era, I fear she's right. After a few months in the city, I decide to move to the chic suburban neighborhood of Laurelhurst. I knew little about it other than the apartment I found was stunning. A gut-renovated basement unit with a large kitchen and walk-in rain shower with slate floors. The beauty of the apartment's interior and the building's exterior awed everyone who saw it, including the Ethiopian Lyft driver who pulled up to the house to drop me off. We finally made it, he said. I rent, I assure him, and just the basement. Not for long, he responded. I smiled and gave him a tip. I must admit that for a time, the apartment did feel like an achievement. A few months before I finished graduate school, I visited Portland for the first time. I had a couple of job interviews and was trying to figure out if I could live in a city that had the reputation of being absurdly white. Before one of my interviews, I popped into Cure, a juice bar. I spotted an older woman with clean gray twist, wearing a beautifully cut white suit. The first black person I'd seen during 48 hours in Portland. We smiled and made eye contact. Perhaps this will work, I thought to myself. I accepted the job the following week. What am I, what am I Everything I she comes true. The perhaps I was qualifying back then was the time I had previously spent gentrifying black urban neighborhoods. My old apartment in Harlem had been down the street from brownstones purchased by Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Maya Angelou, who bought property to invest some of their wealth into a historic black community. I moved there because the street was pretty and the rent was cheap. Forget the fact I was replacing someone who could not afford the now doubled rent. I was black. I was in my mid-20s. I hoped I could do some good, but mostly I wanted to live in Manhattan and next to all my uptown friends. It was the recession. The whole city stank of strain and desperation, particularly the blocks around 125th Street, where families who'd maintained those neighborhoods for generations were closing their businesses and losing their homes. My time there was ugly, my guilt like a bad taste. Perhaps, I thought, with smug elitism, Portland will be the type of place where I get to choose what it means to be black. Black Portlanders call Portland the town of the one black friend. If you're tired of living in places where other black people ask you to pull out your black card, Portland could seem like your kind of place. It has a thriving community of black artists and bookstore blacks 
vegan blacks, SoCal blacks, cosplay blacks, and black Nike, Adidas, Intel corporate employees. Blacks hand-selected to accessorize Portland's pretty, liberal, utopian landscape. Portland is small enough that you can curate your own black experience. But Portland counts on people of color to believe that our living in Portland makes them liberal and accepting, and us unique and exceptional. Portland counts on us to cover up the targeted attacks on its indigenous, black, Asian, and Latinx communities that it continues to make and has made for centuries. I didn't go looking for a black neighborhood to live in because I was told Portland had no black neighborhoods, something I found momentarily liberating, that I didn't have to choose a neighborhood segregated by skin color. It took me nearly a year to learn enough about the city's history to understand what people meant when they said these neighborhoods don't exist. The music you're listening to in this episode is by Maita, M-A-I-T-A. And now for our commercial break. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. You are listening to Storybound with Shayla Lawson and Maita. And now we return from our break. You know, the joke in Portland is that Portland's so white, even the black people live in Albina, says my one white friend from college as he drives me to my new apartment after collecting me from the airport. But the real joke isn't that all the black people in Portland live in the Albina district. The real joke is Albina's where all the black people used to live. Used to live. Used to live. Oregon was established as a white utopia on the North American continent. Laws prohibiting black people to take up residence in the region go back to 1844. 1844. 15 years before the West Coast Territory ever became a state. In service to its original utopian mission, Oregon kept the zoning laws, relegating people of color to specific neighborhoods. On the books, on the books. Well into the mid the and late 20th century. On the books, on For the instance, books. For instance, it was still officially legal to beat a black person found on the street after sundown until 1996. Legal, legal, until, legal. until 1996. 1996. 1996. 1996. From 1890 to the eve of World War II, Albina was its own city and home to the majority of the region's segregated African-American population. 
Even after Albina was absorbed into Portland proper, the district was one of the only places where black people were legally allowed to live. From 1890, from 1890 by live, I mean rent homes, to the eve of World War II. Although a few black families managed to purchase property, the houses in Albina were primarily owned by wealthy whites. Despite organ racism, Albina became home to thriving black businesses as well as families. But what remains of that history now is mostly Albina Avenue, a gentrified residential area largely indistinguishable from the streets that surround it. The Albina district, however, was not the first casualty in Portland's war to keep out black neighbors. That dubious distinction is left to Vanport. About a year into my time in Portland, I finally nailed down a full-time job at a digital marketing firm working as a content writer and creative strategist. The job drew on a combination of the skills I'd acquired as a freelance writer, designer, and educator. I got pretty good at it. I was in charge of a couple of copywriting employees, and it was during a check-in with one of my staff members that I learned the company was working on a branding campaign for the Vanport Jazz Festival. A Vanport Jazz Festival, headlined primarily by white acts, most of whom weren't even jazz performers. Given how white Portland is, a predominantly white jazz festival might not feel like a particular atrocity. But Vanport, the location the festival organizers chose, was a disappeared city of black Oregonians and the site of one of the most horrific erasures of black Americans in the 20th century. And the fact you've probably never heard of it shows how deeply the West Coast racial issues get buried. Of course, the history of America is nothing if not the stories of the bones of dark people buried beneath a gentrified landscape. Take, for example, the New York City African burial ground below the building of the NYC Commission on Human Rights. Human rights. Human rights. Or the Narragansett burial ground, located underneath, underneath a pristine suburb in Rhode Island. Underneath, underneath. But unlike these sites, Vanport was not an unearthing of our dead, but an intentional burial of the living. During the 1940s, Black people moved from the southern U.S. to the North, Midwest, and Pacific Northwest as part of the Great Migration. Vanport, located just north of Portland's Albina District and south of Vancouver, Washington, became a popular destination during World War II because of the shipyards along the Columbia River and because it was one of the few places in the country offering all its employees equal pay. All equal pay. Regardless of race. One of the few... One of the few places in the country, places in the country, regardless of race, regardless of race. Regardless the shipyards employed so many people that the government built wartime public housing for the migrants. Oregon, a state whose racist policies made it impossible for black people to live there, went from having about 1,800 black residents in 1940, 1940, 1940 to more than 15,000 by the time the war ended. 15,000 in Vanport and Albina alone. Vanport had become the second largest city in Oregon, home to Vanport College, which later grew into Portland State University, and home to the largest federal housing project in America. 
Vanport's black shipyard employees were essential during the war. But when the war ended and the shipyards closed, Portland wasn't particularly keen on its new dark neighbors. Although by 1947, African-Americans composed, depending on reports, as little as 17%, or at most 35%, of the total population of Vanport, Wealthy Portlanders lodged a campaign against the housing project with the goal of closing it. Portland, Portland, a city that had, up until that time, maintained its idyllic image as a white utopia, considered the Vanport housing project a physical manifestation of the black public scorch. Vanport was also home to war veterans, Vanport college faculty, white shipyard workers, and all these men's families. But unlike these white inhabitants, many of whom moved into Portland as the shipyard's laid off employees, Portland's strict regulations around where black people could live made migration into the city almost impossible. On Memorial Day in 1948, the two rivers that flanked Portland and Vanport, the Columbia and the Willamette reached flood height. Vanport lay in the basin of the flood zone and Housing Authority of Portland officials knew that its cheaply built tenements wouldn't survive a flood. But they did not say this to its residents. In fact, on that Monday, with a flood imminent, Vanport residents woke up to signs posted all over the neighborhood reading, Remember, remember dikes are safe at present. You will be warned if necessary. You will have time to leave. Don't get excited. Get excited. Literally, the housing authority posted signs that read, Don't get excited. Instead of the flood warnings required by law. Or saying nothing at all. Residents only found out about the imminent destruction because a group of Vanport College students who had been researching the dam came to collect the equipment they'd been using so it would not be lost in the flood. The people of Vanport managed an emergency evacuation in the 35 minutes that separated them from imminent death. By 4.17 p.m., the dam broke, and within 10 minutes, the entire town was swept away by the flood. Although it is reported only 15 people lost their lives that day, Vanport, Oregon's second largest city, the home of 90% of its black population, disappeared.
The music you are hearing in this episode was sampled from Maita, M-A-I-T-A. And now for our final commercial break. You are listening to Storybound with Shayla Lawson and Maita. And now for our final chapter. I presented the tragedy of Vanport to my direct superior at the digital marketing firm, having researched the anecdotes I'd heard. I reread articles from the Vanport Mosaic Flood Memorial and the Oregon History Project. I read recent newspaper articles in the Oregonian, Portland Tribune, and Willamette Week. I pulled notes from lectures I'd attended led by West Coast historian Walida Amarisha. My director, a Canadian import, hadn't heard of any of this. Wasn't that flood an accident? She asked. No. No, it was not. And all the fish parts, they take what they get and the other tongues and the broken parts, they sit and they're taped and they get it done, done, get it done, done. Around the same time, Pepsi had come out with a commercial that whitewashed Black Lives Matter protests into something that looked like an urban version of Coachella. And the criticism happening in the commercial's wake made advertising companies momentarily more conscientious about how they were representing their brands. I mentioned that in light of this, we should be careful about how we market a white jazz festival, co-opting the land where some were killed and thousands of Black Oregonians were intentionally made homeless. I went back to my desk and emailed her a Smithsonian article citing the involvement of the Housing Authority. After the flood, it did not take long for Portland to relocate the hostility it felt for the vanished Vanport onto the flourishing, predominantly Black district of Albina, home to 80% of the city's Black residents. By 1962, Albina was declared by elected officials to be in an advanced state of blight. Landlords began to evict tenants, demolish buildings, and sell the land to developers of glossy urban renewal projects, including the Legacy Emanuel Medical Center expansion, which, according to a 2012 article in The Oregonian, raised nearly 300 homes and businesses, destroying the heart of the African-American community. The new hospital project in Albina was never completed, and the land raised for the hospital expansion remained vacant. Portland's one black neighborhood never recovered. During the anniversary celebration, the hospital invited a group of black community leaders and former Albina residents to a pancake breakfast in order to apologize for uprooting over half of the city's black residents. A pancake breakfast. A pancake breakfast. A pancake. Almost 50 years Almost later. 50 years Almost later. 50 years later. Damn. When I moved to Portland, I didn't know I was just another instrument of the city's ongoing black erasure. But I should have guessed. I spent a lot of time there walking the streets wearing a hood, often at night. I am dog mother to a small Havanese. He's black too. Doing this makes me acutely aware of the dangers of being alone and black at night, especially in the places we think of as America's good, safe neighborhoods. After a few months of walking in the dusk in Laurelhurst, 
where my black dog and I made up the entire black population, the neighborhood started to feel less idyllic and more menacing. I encountered one too many Stepford-looking couples eager to interrogate me as I attempted to pass their homes. Their wife on her knees cutting shrubbery, the husband holding a watering hose over the lawn. What do you do for work? He asks. Translation. Translation. How can you afford to live here? How long have you been here? She asks. Translation. Translation. How did you move in without my knowing about it? Have you registered yourself with the neighborhood watch? They fire the questions in rapid succession as I try to keep walking. The answer to the first neighbor's question is that I was still working at the creative agency where my office superiors thanked me for my candor regarding Vanport and told me they'd get back to me. They decided to continue working on the jazz festival project anyway, adding a hyperlink to the festival's website with a letter of condolence written by the Oregon Historical Society. To all those affected affected by the Vanport tragedy. tragedy. My employer attempted to boost its image as a diverse company by shading in its cartoon sketches of all the staff to match our skin tones and publishing articles in advertising journals and in interviews in local newspapers about the diversity internship program started by the company's founder. They brought in a local black academic to lead us through diversity training. Perhaps this initiative and the jazz festival were incongruous. Perhaps not. There is absolutely nothing more important to the liberal residents of my gentrified neighborhood, one littered with Black Lives Matter signs, than to protect their sense of feeling not racist, despite their inhospitable prejudices against our presence. And this, Portland, is not alone. Cities across America are carving liberal, predominantly white enclaves out of what used to be socially and culturally mixed or predominantly black neighborhoods in nearly every state. But I question Portland's loyalty to the cause of Black Lives Matter. When I consider my time living and working in Portland, I remember two situations in which the only responsible thing to do was to speak up at the discrimination against and erasure of Black people. In both cases, I was met with a clear assertion from the so-called liberal residents of this white utopia that it would be better if I found a new place to go, to work, to live. I lived there for three years. I moved both jobs and houses as many times. So often, as I cleared my desk or stuffed my belongings into the back of my car, transporting myself to another part of the city, from education to advertising, from the suburbs to downtown, I wanted to ask them, If the history of Black lives in America, in our own neighborhoods, does not matter, what does? Black Lives Matter is an organization founded by three Black women, Patrice Conn-Cullors, Alicia Garza, and Opal Tometi. In the summer of 2017, the FBI marked 
Black Lives Matter as a terrorist organization, a Black identity extremist group. This labeling should scare all Americans, but it should surprise none of us. I never once believed my neighbors kept their impeccable Black Lives Matter yard signs up as a sign of true protest. Black Lives Matter yard signs mattered to my neighbors because, in a world increasingly interested in protecting the rights of a select few, they were looking for ways to feel safe from white guilt. They didn't want to take a hard look at how they too are contributing to this country's undoing by actively benefiting from the comfort of exclusionary liberal white communities. Communities that don't have to confront their blatant discrimination because they are not forced to ask themselves if the way they treat their non-white neighbors is right. They stay inside their houses, believing they are protecting American democracy like a constitution quoting Atticus Finch. Black Lives Matter yard signs do, on their lawns, what signs have always been designed to do. Maintain control. To keep whatever is outside, out. Despite my having grown up in the South, Portland is the most racist place I have ever lived. This is because being anti-racist isn't about using politically correct buzzwords and giving lip service to sensitive conversation topics. Being anti-racist is about constructing a landscape that is safe for dark people to inhabit. It is not about white people trying to prove they are woke by putting up yard signs. That is not even what woke means. Woke is a territory of open-eyed, unsuperficial cultural awareness white people are nowhere close to occupying. They are not even in the neighborhood. But being anti-racist in this dangerous era is something they can do by going out of their way to make non-white people feel safe. When I finally leave Portland, I am tired of being an outsider. I move back to New York, to Brooklyn, a newly constructed housing co-op in East Flatbush. I am still gentrifying. This is not something I can look past. But I build connections. I patronize its local Black-owned businesses, which include wine shops and gluten-free bakeries and juice bars. I stop and talk to the locals, many of whom still own their townhomes, while I walk my dog. They never ask me what I'm doing here. There is not a single Black Lives Matter sign to be seen. Why would we need to be reminded it matters that we exist? I rent. Hopefully not for long. I have grown enough to understand I can be bigger than the space I occupy. I can be a good neighbor. I take stock in this. I take root. And that is Shayla Lawson. Be sure to look her up her book. This is Major Notes on Diana Ross, Dark Girls and Bean Dope. You can buy yourself a copy at your local bookseller. It's called This Is Major by Shayla Lawson. And thank you to Maita for their songs, Perfect Heart, and I'm Afraid of Everything. It was such a pleasure sampling them. Go look them up on Spotify. That's Maita, M-A-I-T-A. Let's repeat it with me. M-A-I-T-A. That's Maita. 
Thank you to Hannah Bishop and Harper Collins. Thank you to Jeff Kilgore of The Syndicate. And of course, as always, thank you to my buddy Tim for keeping up and mixing these episodes like his life depends upon it. Tim Carplus is his name. Storybound is arranged, produced, and hosted by me, Jude Brewer. Our executive producers are Jeff Umbro of The Podglomerate and Justin Alvarez of Lit Hub. This month is Black History Month, and we're diving back in next Tuesday. Make sure you're subscribed to the show. Your friends, too. Connect with us on Instagram or Twitter at StoryBoundPod. See you this Tuesday. The Podglomerate. A Sonic Universe. Wait, I see it. This is for water. This is for air. This is for air. This is for earth. This is for earth. And this is for fire. This is for fire.